It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. In an article I read recently, I believe it was on CNN, I learned of a phrase called compassion fade. It's the idea that the more people are impacted by tragedy, the less we as people are impacted by it. And I thought this was really fascinating because compassion is something I'm passionate about. You know, it's it's a, a big part of my life. So I think it's important to examine this. Another way of explaining the concept of compassion fade is seeing it as the tendency to experience a decrease in empathy as the number of people in need of aid increase. It's a type of cognitive bias that has a significant effect on, as Wikipedia says, the pro-social behavior that generates helping. The psychological theory may be observed by an individual's reluctance to help when faced with mass crisis. And apparently this term was developed by a psychologist and researcher named Paul Slovic. This is especially interesting in terms of COVID. I think I read, if this is hopefully accurate, in the end of February 2021, is it 500,000 people have died from COVID? So by the time this episode comes out, there'll be even more deaths. And it's interesting because that number is so large, and yet it's hard to kind of fully grok that number when you think about it. One thing I'd like to know is how that compares to how many people died on 9-11. Let's see. Because to me, that was such a big deal. And this is kind of mind-blowing. Jason, do you know how many people died approximately on, on September 11, 20, or 2001? I don't think I could even feel the gas. What's your guess? It's a huge building. I, I'm assuming most of those, there was the airplane that went down. There was the buildings, the towers. The number that just flashes in my head is like 3,800 people. It was actually less than that. It was... 2,977, according to the quick number I pulled up, there were 25,000 injured. And 9-11, for those of us who were alive during that time, was such an intense event for the United States, I think for the entire world. And it was very traumatic, right? And it's not meant to be a comparison per se, but when you look at those two numbers, approximately 3,000 people who died from that one event compared to 500,000 people who have died in the past year approximately of COVID, that's crazy. And I think perhaps because it's been stretched out over time and our general human challenge of understanding numbers, conceptualizing those numbers that might be one of the reasons that compassion starts to fade. So 
it's fascinating to me because it's like our empathy is going down as the people in need or the people affected go up. It doesn't make much logical sense, but I think it's incredibly relatable because in terms of COVID, for example, we start to become numb. I mean, we we hear of deaths constantly, right? And I wonder, and I haven't really dug into this concept yet, so we can do that throughout this episode, but my first reflection is that we're seeing it so much. Do we numb ourselves as a coping mechanism? Is it our way of handling something that's so intense or or even hard for us to understand, like I said, like until we put things into context, like I just did with the deaths of 9-11, sometimes without that context, it's harder to really step back and reflect on something, you know? And, and I wonder why is it that 9-11 is like that day for me of horrific tragedy as it was. And COVID has certainly been disturbing and challenging for me mentally, but I I think it's because it's been spread out so much that at this point in my life, at least, doesn't feel as intense as 9-11. And I'm curious if you feel that same way. And then we also have war. I mean, I suppose we could do a a deep dive into all sorts of tragedies that have happened and really examining them and our reactions to them and how sometimes we place so much emphasis on one tragic thing, but we don't put as much emphasis on something that's even more tragic. I think it brings up the question of of what are the roots of empathy and what is it that allows us to say, look at a person we don't know personally, whether those were the lives of people of color that were taken by law enforcement, whether that's the people who have died in the current pandemic, the people who have died in 9-11, the people who died in the Holocaust, the people who die every year in global wars. I mean, to your point, Whitney, we could bring up a seemingly never-ending list of examples throughout human history of, of deep large-scale suffering. But to me, I I wonder, what are the roots of how empathy is born and engendered in us? And then why do we decide, when and how do we decide, rather, to extend that empathy toward others? And I think, to reflect what you were talking about, I think there is a certain amount of psychological compartmentalization that occurs with people when they are just bombarded on a daily basis with death and tragedy and loss and suffering. And for me as an empath, as someone who feels very deeply and viscerally, I've always been an incredibly sensitive person. I compartmentalize too, because if if I ruminate too much on the devastation and the suffering and the death, I will literally just be crumpled in a ball or on my meditation pillow, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And some, some days I do, some days I feel this collective suffering in my body and just need to cry. But I think if I were to do that all day, every day, I would be a very ineffective human being because I'd just be sitting in my room crying about all the suffering in the world. And so I think on one hand, we can have awareness of the totality of the suffering and the, the collective human struggle. But then how do we have the awareness of that and yet move forward and take action in life? And to your point, with compassion fade, because I had not even heard this term until you texted me about it yesterday, what is it that causes a person to perhaps remove most of or all of their empathy from a situation, not just to compartmentalize and and move through the motions of their day to function as a human being and do things. But to your point, Whitney, to say, boy, to perhaps pass a homeless embankment, because there are many in Los Angeles today. I was actually having a conversation with a mutual friend of ours yesterday, 
and she brought up her tonality around it was like, oh, there's all these homeless people in LA now. And I was like, do you care to ask why? Like, would you like to know why so many people are homeless right now? Would you like to take into account the economic devastation or the social iniquity or the fact that the cost of living in LA goes up and up and up every year and we're still in the midst of a pandemic? You know, it's, it's, as an example, to remove sort of this judgment of like, ugh, all these homeless people, they're all over the street. It's like, well, I wonder if we ask the question, why are they all over the street? And not to assume that they're all drug addicts or they're all social derelicts or ex-criminals or all the other bullshit assumptions we make about homeless citizens or houseless people, that perhaps there are circumstances that brought them there that had nothing to do with derelict behavior or criminal behavior or drug abuse or any of the other assumptions we make about them. And I think to your point, it's like, well, if we really look at the deeper social causes or the societal mechanisms that shepherd people into these situations, it might be a, an extremely uncomfortable thing to look at, right? Because for those of us who aren't homeless or houseless, I mean, it's difficult to empathize, right? It's like, oh, I can't... I. But the reality is most of us who are not supremely wealthy are, I remember reading an article, there was like two to four circumstances or dominoes, if you will, that would fall in our life that would lead most US citizens to being homeless. Like we're two to four circumstances away from being homeless unless we are abhorrently wealthy. So I, I think, I don't know that I have an answer, Whitney. It's more of like, we have these discussions and, and sometimes we leave these episodes with not a whole lot of answers, it's just questions leading to questions, which I think is great. But I think the idea of compassion fade is, is perhaps also a psychological mechanism for humans to avoid looking at things that make them deeply uncomfortable in the sense of if we look at a problem like homelessness or houselessness, then if a person looks at that, maybe they feel guilty by having means and privilege. Maybe they feel guilty by having housing and food and money and wealth. Maybe they feel radically uncomfortable thinking that maybe there's something I've done that has on a societal level contributed to the to the problem of homelessness. Maybe compassion fade partially is is a way for people to inoculate themselves from looking deeper as to any guilt or shame they might feel for their privilege and or their contributions toward a problem of this totality. That's kind of what comes up for me is like, "Ah, oh, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to look at it." Because maybe they're trying to avoid feeling the awful feelings that might come if they actually do look at the problem. Before I respond to that, I did look up the numbers. And to be clear about COVID, for example, at the time of this recording, which is February 27th, 2021, there have been 511,000 U.S. deaths and globally 2.5 million it's a lot. So I don't want to leave out the rest of the world. The, the 500,000 reference I had was for US only, which is really crazy to me. I also dug deeper into compassion fade. And this concept was introduced in 1947 by Joseph Stalin's statement, the death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. Compassion fade contradicts the traditional model for valuing life that assumes all lives should be valued equally. And I think that was the reason that this feels so compelling to us, because compassion is, is so much at the core of what we consciously believe in. 
And I think this is a wake up call though, because I think each of us experience compassion fade and it's actually very common. One of the reasons, one of the causes of compassion fade is that compassion is experienced greatest when an individual is able to pay more attention to and more vividly picture a victim because vivid mental stimuli plays a large part in us processing information. Our human ability to feel compassion is actually very limited. So the more vivid mental images are closely related to greater empathy. And since a large number of victims is more difficult to picture, it becomes more depersonalized, causing us as individuals to feel like our empathy is stretched thin. And I think that we're stretched thin in general. Like, you know, burnout is a major issue that we're facing. In fact, I've been seeing the word burnout so frequently recently, Jason. I don't know if you have noticed the same thing. It reminds me of how in the past year, the word anxiety has just grown so much. It's such a common term for us to use. And now burnout is like quickly catching up to that. There are so many people expressing that. I don't know if it's a growing awareness of what it means to be burnt out. I don't know if we're starting to feel more comfortable talking about it, identifying it, but we are just stretched thin as a whole. So I bet you that's another huge reason that compassion fade is happening. It's like we only have so much capacity to feel and handle things in a given day. And many of us are really trying to just make it through the day. To your point about homelessness, Jason, it's like if our own survival is at risk, like do we even have the bandwidth to have compassion for others? I would say in a lot of cases we don't. Because if we are in that part of our autonomic response of fight or flight, of fear, of survival, it's very difficult to overcome that chemical surge in our neurology. It's so very, very difficult to see out of that state if we are simply trying to provide for ourselves and our family. I think what you what you pointed out, Whitney, is very wise and very accurate. And I think part of this, though, that I wanted to bring up was was a discussion that I've been seeing on social media a lot in the past, say, four to five months, there's been a lot of people talking about, and this is maybe, it's a tangentially related part of this, but how a lot of new age concepts and new age thinking and new age spirituality has mutated into this extremely discompassionate sort of separate mentality with people. The Conspirituality podcast I've listened to has been really touching on this. Alex Ebert, who I've brought up, and then there was a really great pl- clubhouse room this morning from 10 to noon that I was in right before we started recording, Whitney, called New Age Narcissism. There's going to be a two-part series. There's going to be one next weekend as well. And there were some really fascinating topics being brought up around how New Age thought, sort of the stuff that arose in the late 1800s, early 1900s around you know Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, that these concepts have mutated into sort of this, well, they must be homeless because they created their own reality. They must have manifested that homelessness. They must have manifested getting COVID. I've seen some really disturbing messages, disturbing for me at least, to see certain influencers and I don't even know what to call them, people in in our wellness community talking about like, why should we help you? Because you manifested that. Maybe if you were a better manifester or maybe if you were just to think more positively, you wouldn't be homeless. 
you wouldn't have caught COVID. Like there are people who are like, if I just take the right supplements and I think positively, then I'm not a vibrational match to COVID. I'm not a vibrational match to homelessness. I'm not a vibrational match to victim consciousness. And I think this does tie into what we're talking about with compassion fade, because not only is, is it a way for, I think, humans to provide themselves with some sort of psychological reinsurance that they have some semblance of control over reality when we have a financial meltdown, when we have a global pandemic, when we have massive uncertainty. If I create my own reality, well, then guess what? That means I'm in control of reality. So then I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I don't have to succumb to the chaos outside of myself. That's one part of it. But I think the other part of it is it removes the empathy and compassion piece. If we look around and we see, I mean, this line of thinking could be like, oh, well, you know, that child who had AIDS at birth, they must have manifested it. Or that must be like their soul's journey to have, you know, AIDS at birth or that person who, who's homeless or that person who caught COVID. I mean, we could extend this line of thinking, but it's, it's an extremely slippery slope. And there's a lot of these viral memetics that have infected social media, Whitney, of, of this, this mentality around manifestation sovereign reality creation, the power of creating your own reality, that that has gone to a very dark place, in my opinion, of removing empathy and compassion toward others. So it's it's a bit bizarre because because some of the people who are claiming this, Whitney, on the one hand, they'll say things like, well, we're all one. We're all one human family. And I'm saying these messages because I want people to wake up. It's like, but if I don't think there can be a container for saying we're all one human family and you know we're all connected. But then, oh, you actually created your own reality and you're homeless and you're destitute and you have a disease. So, yeah, I'm going to stay away from that because that's, quote, low vibe. That's a low vibration. And I don't want my vibration to interact with that. So I think there is a part of it where a lot of people are adopting this, you know, as Alex Ebert says, this siloed reality of the disease can't touch me. Homelessness can't touch me. War can't touch me. I'm immune to it because I've chosen to create a reality that's immune to it. But I think that's creating a level of very dangerous detachment from one another, that kind of thinking. It's highly, highly concerning to me. And I think it is part of this conversation of the lack of compassion and empathy. It's certainly a complex subject matter because there's a lot of things at play. And this is why I think it's incredibly important to talk about because hopefully it's getting the listener reflecting on this in our role. It certainly is for me. As I continue down the research on compassion fade, one thing I find is that individuals tend to tune out feelings because they're trying to avoid becoming emotionally overwhelmed or distressed. So that matches up with the burnout. There's also the bystander effect that can be applied at this, can be part of this. And the bystander effect is the concept that people are less willing to help in the presence of other people than when they are alone. And I've been fascinated with this since I was studying psychology in school because the concept of it is very different from the reality for most of us, meaning that if somebody said, hey, would you help somebody if you saw them getting robbed? Logically, you're like, of course I would. But if you were put in that situation and there were other people around, it's actually very common that you would wait to see if other people would help first. I actually got to experience this a bit, I think it was last weekend. I was working at my desk in front of the window and I saw this woman calling out. Well, she wasn't calling out for help, but she was her tone of voice I could hear was distressed. And I watched her for a little bit because 
long story short, it looked like somebody hit her car. I'm not even going to get into the details of it, but (laughs) I remember observing her and my first instinct was like, okay, let me take in the information to see, does this woman need my help? Then the second level was, is anyone else helping her? (laughs) And I was watching the reaction of people walking by and no one was really stopping to help her. And that's when I thought I need to do something. So it was the kind of the bystander effect in a way that I was waiting for cues from others to kind of collect the information. But as it was happening, I remembered the bystander effect in my head. I remember that I don't want to be that person that stands by. And so I went to help and I ultimately was kind of part of supporting her and there other people got involved. But it was just an interesting thing to go through because I think some people hesitate to get involved because they don't feel like it'll make enough of a difference. And this is the other thing that came up with the compassion fade is that to your point, Jason, like sometimes we examine people and we're like, Hey, like maybe they brought this on themselves or maybe they're responsible. Maybe they don't need my help. And maybe part of that is we're trying to monitor our own resources and it's like, okay, am I going to use my energy, my time, my money? Am I going to use any of these precious resources to help somebody? First, we want to step back and evaluate, do they actually need our help? And that's an interesting thing to observe within ourselves because it is a kind of, you need to put on the oxygen mask first type of scenario for a lot of us because we can't effectively help others if we haven't helped ourselves first. But sometimes it's very situational because it depends on exactly what's going on, right? Am I going to put myself in danger? That was part of the thing I noticed based on the circumstances of the situation last week. I was observing to make sure, was it safe for me to go help this person? And that sadly is a bigger and bigger reality in the neighborhood that I'm in. There's been a lot of crazy crime going on and it's not a area that I would associate with crime. But if you pay attention, there's a lot of scary things happen happening, right? And that's disturbing too, because I wonder sometimes do we not help others because we're afraid that it's going to put us at risk too. I was actually thinking about this in terms of the homeless, Jason, because that's something I would like to eventually get more involved in. I was watching the documentary on Netflix about the Cecil Hotel, and a huge part of that documentary is about the location of it in downtown LA and how close it is to Skid Row. And as they were showing the footage and talking about Skid Row and all the homeless people there, I thought, oh my gosh, like I'd like to do something. But then they start talking about how dangerous that is. And I thought, like, oh great. Like, how do you do something when when it's that dangerous? You have to be a little bit cautious about it, you know? And so I think maybe that also contributes to compassion fade is like, it takes so much work to help people that we wonder maybe it's not even worth it or it's too risky for us to do something. Another thing that I thought was really interesting, and I'm pulling this from the Wikipedia page, so we'll link to this. There's if you if you do a web search for compassion fade, you'll find a lot of resources, but Wikipedia summed it up really well. They, by the way, are often looking for donations, and that kind of ties into what I am about to share, which is the concept of provision of aid. Research on charitable donations indicates that donations are negatively related to the number of people in need. For example, in 2014, the Ebola outbreak saw the loss of over 3,400 lives, 
and donations to the American Red Cross was $100,000 over a six-month period. However, the next year in 2015, a crowdfunding campaign for a child in New York to visit Harvard raised over $1.2 million in a one-month period. So one person got over a million dollars versus over 3,000 people collectively only received donations of $100,000 over a six-month period. And that's really interesting, right? It's like, okay, there's a lot of factors at play. Like we will often think like, okay, like who is this going to help? How is this going to be? efficient and effective. This is the other thing is is our willingness to help is often motivated by the perceived efficiency of our contribution or efficacy, I should say. So if we don't think that we're being helpful, then we're less likely to help. And yet, so crowdfunding, I think sometimes it's like, ooh, like, oh my gosh, you know, you might donate money because nobody has donated money. You might donate because a lot of people have donated and you want to be part of it, right? Like there's so many psychological factors at play with donating money. And this is a super fascinating thing to examine. Like when you're talking about the homeless, Jason, a lot of times we associate that with donations, but many of us know what it's like to see a homeless person hesitate to donate a dollar to them because we're afraid that they're going to go buy drugs or something, right? Or we're afraid that it, we're not actually helping them. I mean, this is a co- helping other people is actually very complex the more that we dig into it. And I think it's hard enough for us to help ourselves. So I bet you another element of this is like people are just feeling straight up fatigued and burnt out and hopeless and helpless. And it's like, hey, I need to pay my own bills or I'm struggling to pay my own bills. Like I don't have the resources to help other people. And yet I think an important element of this, Jason, is that out of all the research I've done on self-improvement and happiness, one of, if not the number one thing that comes up is that when you help other people, it actually really boosts the way that you feel about life. People are so intertwined into our lives that when we do something for others, we end up feeling really good about it, which improves our our lives as a whole. I think this brings up an interesting offshoot, which is, is it okay to help others under the auspices of, I want to feel better, so I'm going to go help others? Because, I, and I don't want to position this when I say, okay, I was about to say right, and I, I don't want to set this up as a dualistic exploration of, is it right or wrong? But I examine this too, Whitney, of when I have gone to feed the homeless, whether that was through our mutual friend Nicole's Martha Project nonprofit or or other mechanisms of, you know, rescuing animals, some of the things that I'm I'm really passionate about. I've really sat with my motives, you know, of of am I doing this so I can feel better? And if there is a part of me that's doing it for that reason, is that bad? Is that wrong? Should I feel bad about that? And it also brings up, I think, an important question in terms of the psychology of human beings of, is there such a thing as a completely altruistic act where a sense of self or a sense of what am I going to get out of it is completely devoid of the action? I mean, it really is kind of difficult to think about 
and I, I'd like you to, you know, challenge me on this if, if you feel compelled, Whitney, but to think of an act, a human act that is completely altruistic, that is devoid of a sense of self. I mean, it, it, it's difficult to imagine. I mean, something that might come up would be, I don't know, a, a child in the middle of the road and the parent sees the car coming for the child and runs out and pushes the child out of the way only to get struck and killed by themselves for themselves, you know, something that extreme, which does happen in the world, but I think most human actions, even generous ones, or ones that are based out of compassion, I don't think are a hundred percent altruistic. And I'm not again, I'm not saying this that that's a bad thing, but I wonder if our compulsion to help others, Whitney, is assisted by this chemical feedback of endorphins, feel-good neurochemicals, yay, I help someone else. If maybe biologically that's part of our compulsion. Much like the neurochemical that is released when a child is born that helps the child and the mother bond. I'm blanking on it right now. Oh, crap. It's the same. It's the same. Isn't that oxytocin? Thank you. Oxytocin. Okay. So on a biological level, right? If we are compelled to nurture and bond with other humans, chemically speaking, then perhaps this desire to extend compassion and support and generosity is also chemically motivated. And that might not be a bad thing, right? Of, okay, I'm, I want to go feed the homeless. I want to go rescue animals. I want to donate to this, this BIPOC nonprofit that's for racial justice. And maybe it is, yes, that I do believe in the cause and I do believe in helping people that are vulnerable, that are oppressed, that are in danger, that are in harm's way. But I also know that on a chemical level, after I do it, I will feel better. And perhaps that's a feedback system that nature has created so we do help each other. Maybe if that feedback system chemically wasn't there, we'd be even less apt to help one another. You know what I mean? If we didn't have that that chemical reward system in our brain. So maybe it's okay that I know going into this that if I donate, help, assist, feed, rescue, etc., that I am helping because there is a higher compulsion to protect and assist the vulnerable, but that I also know I'm going to I'm going to get something back from it. I'm going to feel better about myself. And truth be told, There have been times where I have personally, Whitney, felt really kind of awful about myself and went out to deliver meals to the homeless or or assisted in an animal rescue, knowing that I would not feel as depressed afterward. And I don't feel necessarily bad about that. And again, maybe maybe it's part of nature's design to do that. And and maybe, you know, maybe it's part of our maybe it's part of our collective healing. Think about this for a second. Maybe part of our collective psychological healing, not just post-pandemic, but on a global level, is that neurochemically, if we were to all really choose to dedicate more time to supporting one another, that not only is that creating on a tangible physical level, feeding someone, rescuing them, housing them, sheltering them, whatever, but collectively on a level of psychology and brain chemistry, all healing together because we're all going to feel better about helping one another. That's really interesting to think about too, isn't it? I mean, we talk about global healing, but maybe maybe that's one route we can do that is is to you know support and heal one another. Speaking of healing, we, Whitney and I are very very passionate about not only these mental and emotional but societal forms of healing, but also again we talk about brain chemistry, we talk about physical healing. And one product that we've been just super stoked on with our own healing regimen and our own neurochemistry has been something called Rellies. We've mentioned this in a previous episode. They are a proprietary blend of terpenes. And terpenes might sound like a very exotic thing because usually neurochemically speaking, things like CBD or THC get all the glory. But 
this amazing product that we've both been taking from this brand called Relly's is full of these natural chemical compounds found in fruit and vegetables called terpenes. And these things are absolutely delicious because they're, they're blended with a base of MCT oil. And the specific terpenes are functional in terms of mood support. So we've been taking things like the calm, the joy, but in this case, I'm holding up the focus. And we can point you to the episode we recorded last Friday. And you can listen to that episode to learn more about their products and why we love them. But I'm a big, big fan, Whitney, of doing anything in my power with my mental health routine. And you know that. And I just feel like taking this throughout my day, again, for the specific functional benefits has been so great. So the focus is what I usually take in the middle of the day to really just help out my brain chemistry. And this one, it's got some some great ones like limonene. And that's a, again, a terpene that has been derived from natural sources. They're in herbs and fruits and vegetables. And they blend these terpenes together to help you get your mood and your brain chemistry going in a certain way. So I love this one in particular. Let me let me check the flavor on this one because I think the one we tried last time, Whitney, had sort of a tropical flavor, didn't it? Yeah, this one I just took as well. And it it's kind of lemony, very citrusy is what I pick up on it. It's not as tropical as the joy. That's the specific terpene called limonene, which is a citrus-derived terpene. So it would make sense. It is very lemony. And since we mentioned it in last week's episode, which it actually came up a few times, but I think it was last Wednesday's episode, Jason, when we were talking about joy, you were asking like how we could incorporate it into recipes. And we reached out to the Rellies team and asked them and, and they said yes. I don't know if they gave us any specifics, but... If you look up MCT oil recipes online, there are so many different ways that you could incorporate this into something if you prefer, because sometimes it's fun to drop it into your mouth and sometimes it's nice to put it into a food or a beverage. The number one thing that comes up when you look for MCT oil recipes are coffee lattes. It became very popular because of Bulletproof Coffee, and I personally love how MCT oil makes coffee taste richer. And MCT oil is a big part of the ketogenic diet. Now, you certainly don't have to be on a keto diet to enjoy MCT oil, of course. this is I think it's a really great delivery mechanism when you're taking something like this, because if I remember correctly, maybe you can back me up on this, Jason, but because of the fat content of MCT oil, it's a really good carrier for it in your body and it helps it absorb. Is that right? Yeah, it assists with the metabolization of the compounds. So in many ways, when you have something like a really healthy fat, it helps with something like, in, for instance, with Indian cuisine, they say that the MCTs in the coconut oil helps you to uptake the curcumin in the turmeric better, metabolizes easier. Or in the case of chocolates, really high quality fats help you uptake the magnesium in chocolate easier. So same thing with the terpenes. It's really about metabolizing it in your body. So to your point, Whitney, the MCT oil is really a good delivery mechanism because it helps with the metabolization. When I was looking up the recipes, I found a really great one from a website called All the Nourishing Things. And it says 40 plus MCT oil recipes that aren't bulletproof coffee, which is really funny. Let's but link to that. Yeah, I'm going to link to this for sure. It's very well written and well um, formatted. And the author talks about MCT oil, which stands for medium chain triglycerides. And she talks about, I, th I believe it's a woman who wrote this, 
about which MCT oil is best and the benefits of it. So for those of you who are curious, since we're talking about this, MCT oil is really great for increasing your energy. So it probably adds another level of focus to rallies. It can reduce brain fog and improve mental clarity. It helps your metabolism. It can help with burning stored body fat. You know, this is one of the reasons that people do the keto diet is to, you know, cut back on on fat for weight loss or or just to feel more toned. And it sounds counterintuitive because MCT oil is high in fat. It's got, you know, the high calorie content. Not so much when you're taking a dropper full. I don't this is only one milliliter. So it's a very small amount with this if you're concerned about oil in general. But I absolutely have found that to be true. In fact, just talking about this makes me want to start consuming more MCT oil because I used to be really into it when I was really focused on the vegan keto diet. It can also be great for the gut, reduce inflammation. Um, It has antiviral and antifungal properties. It's pretty awesome. So we'll link to this recipe because here are a few things that you could drop your rellies into. You could put it into a matcha latte, which sounds really great and different teas that you have that you enjoy. You can put it into green juices, apparently. Although I found with MCT oil, it's liquid in at different temperatures, but sometimes it's a little weird in a cold drink. I don't know if you found that too, Jason, but I think it solidifies a little bit if I remember correctly. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think just fat in general is a good emulsifier. So with MCT oil, when I talk about emulsion, it has just a nice way to make things creamier and denser and thicker. Does it get that? You have to remind me because it's been a while. When you put oil in something cold, typically it gets more solid. And I can't remember if MCT oil has that effect in like a cold drink. I don't think I've ever used... No, actually, you know what? I've used MCT oil in a smoothie form, and because it's blended at a high speed, it doesn't really have that sort of crystallization effect. So, Well, maybe we have to go try this out for ourselves and report back in our next episode, Jason. I think we do. I think think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with, there's a sparkling beverage that I like from a brand that was part of our holiday giveaway called the Bitter Housewife. And I'm actually going to drop the rallies into the Bitter Housewife after we wrap and try it out with that. But for you, dear listener, if you want to get your hands on these mood supportive terpenes from one of our favorite new brands, Rellies, you can go to their website. We have a special website set up for you. It's podcast.wellevator.com, podcast.wellevator.com forward slash Rellies, R-E-L-L-I-E-S. And when you're there, use the coupon code 20 Wellies, 20-W-E-L-L-I-E-S to get 20% off your order. And again, they have three different blends. They have Focus, Joy, and Calm. We've been taking all three. We're digging them so far. And again, if you happen to be sensitive to things like flower essences, then I think your body will also be very, very receptive to the terpenes in the rallies. So with that, Whitney, I, I had something flash on me, you know, kind of going back to this idea of collective healing and this subject of when we extend compassion and we extend support and give our our time and energy to others that we we sort of get this neurochemical kickback and it could be a way that we are motivated as humans to help one another i think that that the part of the thing that i think might prevent people from doing this is that they have a hard time identifying with the inherent how do i even say this 
I was about to say humanity, but I think this extends to animals too. I think that it's overcoming a narrative that has been going on for generations and generations in human society that have to, in some way, taken away the value of certain beings in our world. If we really think about this, what we're up against right now, I think, on on a global psychological level with humans is depending on the society and the country and the family you grew up in, there can be a massive bias against people that are different than you. And for a long time, not just in the American laws, but in other global societies of looking at people of color or looking at slaves or looking at people from different ethnicities as less than human and not and there thereby not extending the same rights and protections to those people based on our judgments and criticisms of them and racism same thing with women i mean we talk about the suffrage movement and giving women the right to vote we talk about the animal rights movement and trying to abolish slaughterhouses and these giant cafo operations that are killing animals by the hundreds of billions i think part of our opening of the circles of compassion and maybe overcoming compassion fade whitney is a deeper conversation about the judgments and the devaluation of other beings that are different than us, different skin color, different religion, different spirituality, different species, different sex. And I think that is a very endemic thing that we, if we're going to survive as a human species, we've really got to address this of even though I don't understand how you worship, how you love, how you pray, you might look different than me, you might vote different than me. I mean, this is really, to me, I think one of the fundamental core issues we have to address as humans is removing our sense of empathy and compassion because of our judgments toward others. And then the question is, how the hell do we even do that when we are facing thousands of years of conditioning that have told us animals, black people, brown people, women, gay people, bisexuals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are not worthy of the same love, protection, and rights as straight, white, cisgendered people. I I mean, you and I have dove into this subject in different ways in previous episodes, but do you feel that? Do you feel what I'm saying? It's like getting to the root of why we don't feel other people are deserving of compassion. I don't know if it's necessarily that we don't have the capacity. I think you're right in terms of burnout, Whitney. Absolutely. I think a deeper level, though, is that we've been taught to not have compassion towards certain people and having zero empathy. In, in fact, the hatred of plaguing our world, it's, it's like celebrating their suffering in some ways, not just the reticence to extend a, a helping hand and have compassion, but almost like celebrating people's sadness and celebrating their sorrow, which is a really dark aspect of the human conscious, I think. Yeah, it, it's interesting because the other thing that th- comes up for me so much is like the cancel culture side of it and how like when we see people not doing well, is there part of us that f- sees ourselves as superior? I think many of us feel inferior in so many elements of our lives, whether we have issues with our self-worth, we don't feel good enough, you know, we, we are struggling to find our value in the world. And so because we operate from a place of so much comparison, we will often perceive ourselves as better or worse than others. And so when we have an opportunity to see someone as less than us, I think that a lot of us savor it. 
myself included, it comes up. I have to check myself on this probably daily. And I'm mostly it is like social media related, you know, I don't like watch the news and think, wow, I've got it better than that person, at least not consciously, but maybe on some level I do. Maybe that's why we love watching reality TV. It takes us through these roller coasters. And a lot of times reality TV is showing like the lowlights of people's lives or showing us the extremes of people so that we can get into that place of thinking that we're better than them. And then, of course, there are times we see them as better than us and Maybe we watch that as like a glutton for self-punishment. I don't know. Much like we like to watch the news and tragedy. I think that's also part of the issue that wasn't really brought up in that Wikipedia page that I referenced is we do have a cultural obsession with seeing tragedy and we use that as a form of entertainment. You know, we love watch collectively. We love watching true crime. I brought up that documentary, The Sesso Hotel. It's like that was one of the biggest Netflix shows in the past couple weeks because people like hearing stories of death and crime and solving mysteries. And we watch violent TV shows and we see images of people being killed or killing others. It's like we get so captivated by all of that. And I bet you that that impacts our compassion as well. We become so numb to suffering through watching a lot of that. And I I think that's an important thing to examine. I would go on to say that I think in a lot of cases, the obsession with suffering is almost a way for us to feel safer and more secure in our own lives. Because if we If we are bearing witness to the suffering of someone and we're kind of obsessed with murder and death and violence, as you're saying, Whitney, it's almost like perhaps a way for us to psychologically feel better about our own lives of, wow, I guess I don't have it as bad as I thought. Look at how bad it is for them. It's a mutation and a tentacle of the comparison trap, really, I think, is, you know, you and I have talked a lot about the one branch and tentacle of the comparison trap, which is looking at people that are doing better than us and making ourselves feel bad about that. But I also think the flip side of that is looking at people who, quote, have it worse or are suffering more, or we relish or celebrate their suffering so that we can feel safer, more in control, or better about our own lives. I think that's absolutely the other flip side of that. Again, I don't know if it's possible for us to completely liberate ourselves from the comparison trap. I mean, maybe there are certain avatars in human society over the civilization and millennia that have done it. But I think it's more about managing how we are trying to obtain a greater sense of safety, security, control, and self-identification through the externalization of these things, right? It's it's like, why do we have to celebrate the suffering and the downfall of others to feel better about ourselves? Why do we feel like we need that? And I'm really saying this so that I can check my own judgments in my life and I can check my own behavior, Whitney, of of ways. And I mean, I in it's doing it in subtle ways. It's like I'll tell you more about this off podcast because it's it's you know some sensitive, detailed information about someone we we both know and care about. But I was having a conversation with them last night, and and they were in a lot of distress, a lot of like they were kind of having an emotional meltdown. To be honest, it was it was pretty intense. And I was walking them through this conversation and just, you know, holding space and compassionately listening. And at one point I could, I observed my mind in mid-conversation judging them 
for their suffering. I was judging their suffering. And in real time, I had to walk myself through this idea of this is a person you love and you care about. Why are you judging their suffering? Are you judging their suffering because you want to feel better than them right now? Are you judging their suffering because you feel like in this moment you're not suffering? And so therefore, this person has taken certain actions or acquired certain things or done certain things in their life to make them feel better, more important, more successful, and it didn't work. You know, was was that a part of my judgment of like, haha, all this stuff you did that you thought was going to make you feel better didn't. But then it was like, well, how many times have you done that, dude? How many times have you gone off and bought something, did something, said something, you know, presented yourself in a certain way to feel, you know, because you thought it would feel better. So I had to observe my own judgment of this, this person's suffering that I love and say like, this isn't about you, Jason, trying to make yourself feel better and comparing your life to their suffering. Like I caught myself doing that in real time and thought that's not what this is about. Like they're having a very real moment of pain and the most important thing for you to do is bear witness to their pain and give love and not compare your, where you're at in your life with their suffering. That's not what this is about, but I caught my brain trying to do it. My brain absolutely wanted to go there. Like Jason's going to make himself feel better because ha ha, this person he loves is suffering and, and he's not. It's not that our brains aren't going to go there. But I think the question, Whitney, is can we take an action to overcome that urge? Because I think on some level, we all have that urge, right? The comparison uh, hierarchy. We've talked a lot about this. But instead of ignoring someone's pain or acting cruelly, even if our brains are telling us to do it, can we make a different choice? And I think that that's really where we reclaim a lot of our, our personal power is observing when our minds want to do something that is cold, that is detached, that doesn't really honor someone's suffering and say, no, 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 we don't have to make that choice. We can actually extend some love and compassion here. You know, and, and the other thing too that I've noticed is um, how we will take away compassion from certain people in their society, in our society, because we feel like their success and their fame and their wealth makes them undeserving of it. And we've talked about this in previous episodes about certain celebrities like Demi Lovato and Kevin Love and other athletes coming out around mental health and the reactions they got on social media. Some of them were like, what do you have to be depressed about? You have tens of millions of dollars. Everyone around the world knows you. You're beautiful. You're attractive. Fuck you. You know, and, and that was a lot of people's response to them coming out about their mental health and their, their depression, their addiction. And I think that that response is, again, not allowing us to heal the collective. If we think just because fame and money and beauty and influence somehow doesn't mean that this person has any emotions or the capacity to suffer, that's something we need to check on a collective level because it doesn't mean that... <laughs> You know, just like my example of helping our friend last night who who does have a lot of wealth and success and privilege and notoriety doesn't mean that she is immune to suffering and pain. And so it's a good thing that we have to check for all of us is to remember that people are deeply feeling human beings and that these external things just don't absolve them from the human experience. So I guess this is, you know, a good this conversation is a good good opportunity for me to check where I'm judging people, Whitney, and I'm not extending as much compassion as I can in my life, because I think there are probably areas where I'm not fully extending compassion to others because of my judgments toward them. And so I think this, like many of our conversations, are part of our our healing process here live and in real time in the podcast of how can we do, how can we quote, do better? And I think one of the biggest ways we can do better is 
boy, trying not to tune out because I feel, I feel burnt out and overwhelmed a lot. You know that as my business partner and co-host, I feel burnt out and overwhelmed a lot, but it, it, I don't want to use that as an excuse to remove my compassion and my love for other people. And I think that in some ways that I have done that. So this is a good introduction to me, to this concept so that I can start to do better and not close down, you know? So with that, we are wrapping this episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. If you, dear listener, want to dig deeper into the research about Compassion Fade, we will have all of the links to all of the resources that we mentioned in this episode on our website, which is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can go to the podcast section, which will take you to the entire transcript and the show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes. As we are going ever more toward the 200 episode mark here, super stoked about that. And as we mentioned, if you want to get your hands on one of our favorite new products from Rellies with these amazing terpene products, these functional mood boosters, you can go to podcast.wellevator.com forward slash Rellies, R-E-L-L-I-E-S. Again, that will be in the show notes on our website. And you can use the coupon code 20, the number 20Wellies, W-E-L-L-I-E-S, to save 20% on your order. So with that, dear friends, if you ever want to reach out to us, we've gotten some incredible emails and direct messages this past week. Super raw, super open, people just ripping their hearts open to us, which is is like, sometimes it feels overwhelming to respond to these kind of messages, but at the same time, it feels like an honor when we receive them. So if you feel moved by any of the subject matter, if this strikes a chord, if it sticks a knife in your heart, if you feel any profound emotions coming from these conversations, you can always email us. It's hello at wellevator.com, or you can shoot us a direct message on our Instagram account, which is at wellevator. So until next time, we encourage you to look at where you can inject more compassion and empathy into your own life, as we are going to challenge ourselves to do the same. And we will keep the conversation going with the next episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your love and support. And we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.